The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. but I've really enjoyed our time in Matthew so far, and I'm excited that I get to bring this text to you this morning because I think it's kind of the culmination of what we've already been looking at uh, for the past few months in the book of Matthew. We began with the lineage of Christ in chapter one, seeing how God had a hand in each person and each story of the ancestry of Jesus. And then we looked at his miraculous virgin birth, How God used an unassuming couple in an ordinary town to bring the Savior into the world. A Savior laid in a feeding trough and yet worshipped by shepherds and wise men alike. In chapter 2, we read about the persecution of Herod. How he was determined to thwart God's plan by removing Israel's new king before he even was made known to the people. But God's plan was not deterred. God delivered the family to Egypt until it was safe to return to Nazareth. Then in chapter three, we met John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus, preaching a message of repentance and baptizing those who responded to his message. And then of course, we saw the baptism of Jesus himself by John, where the Trinity was displayed as the spirit of God descended And the father confirmed, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then last week, we journeyed through the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And we saw how he was tested by Satan, and yet he endured, staving off the enemy with the word of God. Everything that Christ has endured to this point, it's all been preparation for the revealing of the Messiah to the world. Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. That is where we are this morning. I want to go ahead and read the text for us, and then I'll pray for us before we dig in. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship this morning. Thank you for the gift of the church. And thank you for your word. Your word that brings life, that's sharper than any sword, that's profitable for teaching and for correction. God, I ask that you would help me to rightly divide it this morning. I pray that my words would not be a reflection of my own sinful flesh, Lord, but rather an outpouring of your spirit that dwells within. 
Speak through your scriptures this morning so that your truth can be made known to those who hear it. Lord, we give you all the glory at this time. It's in your name and in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So obviously there's a lot packed into this text. And it all sort of comes to a head at the end in verse 17. I promise we're going to get to that because... After all, this is Jesus' first public message, so we know that it must be significant. He's been waiting a long time to start preaching. And verse 17 says that from this time on, Jesus began to preach this message. This is the ultimate theme of all of his sermons. So we're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven and what Jesus means by that. But before we get there, there's a lot of context presented here in the first part of the passage. I think it's important that we spend a fair amount of time there because I think it will help us clarify exactly what Jesus's message means. What we see unfolding in this text is a perfect plan coming together. God's great redemption plan that precedes creation itself, his plan is finally starting to take shape here. The work of John the Baptist in preparing the way is done. Jesus is now going to reveal himself to the world as the savior and redeemer of mankind. This is a great day for sports analogies since there's a big game happening this evening. So I want to talk about America's favorite sport, track. It just works better than football for this illustration, but I'll confess that I don't know very much about track and field beyond the little bit that I relearn every four years when the Summer Olympics comes around. That's when we all become armchair experts in these random sports that we would otherwise never watch or care about, right? One of the track events that gets a lot of attention is the relay races. They're exciting and they're tense. We can all sense the pressure that each runner is feeling as they're about to take the baton from their teammate. And there's a focus on the handoff, right? They have to make a clean handoff. If they stumble or drop the baton, it could cost their team an extra half a second, and that could mean losing the entire race. There's a strategy and a goal for each member of the relay team, but the key role is the anchor. The anchor is the star of the show. They're usually the fastest runner, and they are at the last leg of the relay. They make the last push to get the team across the finish line. And that final handoff is key. The anchor is ready to run as hard as they can. They can give their team a final advantage, but that last handoff has to be perfect. And it has to be at exactly the right moment, too early or too late, and you could be disqualified. The handing off of the baton is critical for success. Hopefully you can start to see where I'm going with this. Otherwise, I just spent way too much time on that analogy. (laughs) The message of God's redemption plan has been shared like a relay race throughout Scripture. You had the patriarchs and the prophets that kind of acted as the first legs of the relay. Isaiah comes to mind, one of the most well-known prophets of Israel. He foretold the arrival of the Messiah in great detail. So it's for good reason that Matthew likes to quote Isaiah all throughout his gospel, just as he does in the passage that we're looking at this morning. There was also Elijah, who we talked about a few weeks ago. 
We saw the similarities between Elijah and John the Baptist, and we even looked ahead to Matthew 11, where Jesus claims that Elijah is, that John is the Elijah who is, is Elijah who is to come. So in effect, John acted as an extension of the prophets into the New Testament age. So we've already had some runners in this relay race. And John the Baptist is bringing it right up to the final leg. But Jesus is the anchor. It's all been leading up to him. Jesus is going to bring it home and deliver the victory. And at first glance, though, that's not really the picture that we get in this text. This is not a picture-perfect Olympic-style handoff from John to Jesus in front of a crowd of cheering fans. In fact, this looks like kind of a rough start to the final leg of this race. Start with me back in verse 12. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. We gotta stop right there because that's a big deal. John the Baptist has been arrested. What? You mean God has crafted this perfect redemption plan and the very messenger that he's called to prepare the way is arrested before Jesus's ministry even gets off the ground. And he's arrested by Herod, no less. This would be Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who we already saw trying to murder the infant Jesus back in chapter two. At this point, we don't need to get too far into the weeds on why John is imprisoned, because we'll hear more of that story when we get to chapter 14 of Matthew, which may not be this year, but we'll get there one day. (laughs) Suffice to say that Herod Antipas, like his father, was not a great guy. He had some sin issues in his personal life, to put it mildly, including an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And John the Baptist, being the straightforward kind of guy that he is, he does not pull any punches in his calls for repentance. He calls Herod out on his sin publicly, and this makes Herod furious. So he throws John in jail. But God had already thwarted the older Herod's plan to kill Jesus and prevent him from taking his throne. So why would God suddenly allow his plan to be interrupted now, right before Jesus is about to start his work? Or is there something bigger at play here in God's sovereign plan? Our text gives us the answer. Look at verse 13. It says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Let's pause here again because there's a lot of locations mentioned in this verse and they're all significant. First, it's worth clarifying that Jesus had actually been in Galilee prior to his baptism by John. Back in chapter three, Matthew says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized. After his baptism, Jesus then goes into the surrounding wilderness of Judea where he is tempted by Satan And it's around this time that John is arrested. Jesus gets word of this. Possibly some of John's followers came to find him and tell him what happened. When he hears the news, Jesus decides not to return south to the region where John had been. And instead, he goes north to Galilee. John's arrest, no doubt, has stirred up some dissension among those that he was ministering to and with. So knowing that this is not the right time to put himself at the center of a political problem, Jesus decides to go elsewhere to begin his ministry. 
Specifically, our text says that he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. And here's where the timeline becomes important because Matthew basically hits fast forward here and he skips over Jesus's time in Nazareth. He just says that Jesus left Nazareth and settled in Capernaum, which is a nearby town right on the Sea of Galilee. And that's where the bulk of Jesus's public ministry takes place. But there's some important stuff that Matthew skips over here. A lot happens in the roughly one year period between the time that Jesus returns to Nazareth until he finally settles in Capernaum and begins his public ministry. In fact, much of that time period is only recorded in the Gospel of John. But there's a lot that happens there. To mention a few events, there's Jesus' first recorded miracle, which is the turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Also, his meeting with Nicodemus and the encounter with the woman at the well. We don't get any of that here. So why does Matthew choose to exclude so much? I think there's something bigger that he wants his readers to see. Look with me again at verse 13. Jesus leaves Nazareth. He goes to live in Capernaum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. What is Zebulun and Naphtali and why does it matter? The next verse gives us a hint. Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Ah, to fulfill prophecy. Matthew is all about that, isn't he? We've seen that since chapter one. He's constantly referring his readers back to the Old Testament prophets. And he likes to quote Isaiah in particular to help his Jewish audience make the connection that Jesus is the Messiah promised in scripture. As we discussed earlier, Isaiah is very specific and very clear with his messianic language. So what is the specific prophecy in this instance? In verse 15, here's what Matthew relays from Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What does all that mean? If we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, which is the reference that Matthew is recalling here, we get a little bit more context. In the preceding chapters, Isaiah had been giving Israel a whole bunch of gloom and doom. He tells them that the nation will be in anguish, that they will dwell in darkness because of their rebellion against God. He says that God has brought into contempt the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are two tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. These tribes had previously occupied the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Paraphrasing Isaiah, Matthew makes this very clear when he says that their land is the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He's clearly referring to Galilee. After God gave the promised land to the tribes, they largely neglected to follow his command to drive out the heathens from the land. Instead, they allowed the Canaanites to continue living amongst them, and they started to trade with them, and eventually they started to intermarry with them. This disobedience finally provokes God's anger to a breaking point, and he sends the Assyrians to wipe them out and remove them from their own land. The Assyrians invaded from the north, and because Zebulon and Naphtali were two of the northernmost tribes, 
they were the first ones to lose their piece of the promised land. From that point on, they're dwelling in spiritual darkness. And their only hope is this promise of light that God has given them through the words of the prophets. Jesus is the light. Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John 8, 12. These two tribes were the first sons of Israel to be forced into darkness. But, don't miss this, Israel, Isaiah promises that they will also be the first to see the light of the Messiah when he comes. That's the promise that's being fulfilled here. That's why Matthew highlights Capernaum in Galilee as the place where Jesus first reveals himself publicly as the Messiah. Galilee becomes the first place where the light of Christ is shown in the darkness for all to see, just as God had promised hundreds of years earlier. And this brings us to the shift in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, he's been ministering to select individuals and small groups of people here and there. He meets one-on-one with Nicodemus under the cover of night. He shows himself as God to a lone woman drawing water at a well. He performs a miracle at a wedding where the primary witnesses are his family and his disciples, not crowds of strangers. He has been revealing his messiahship privately up to this point, but now he's about to go public with his message. And what is the message? This finally brings us to verse 17. Told you we would get there eventually. This is really the key verse of the passage, but it's tied into everything that we've just talked about and really everything that we've seen in the book of Matthew so far. Matthew started with the lineage of Christ described in chapter one. Remember how he broke out the family tree and showed us that Jesus is descended from King David. He's a king descended from a whole line of kings ordered by God from the beginning of Israel. And all of the events that took place surrounding the birth of Christ and the ministry of John the Baptist and the testing of Jesus and the fulfillment of prophecy, all of this has been preparation for the coming kingdom. And now the king has arrived and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what does that mean exactly? If Jesus' message here sounds familiar, it's because it's exactly the same as the message preached by John the Baptist in chapter 3. John was calling for the people to repent and be baptized. But John was not baptizing anyone into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, in verse 11 of chapter 3, he says that explicitly. He tells the Pharisees that he is baptizing with water, but he who is coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And now we have Jesus himself preaching that same message of repentance, but it's made even more meaningful because he is the one delivering the message. Jesus is not only the deliverer of the message, he is the message. Jesus Christ is the king who has come down from heaven and who is himself now at hand here on earth. John had proclaimed it first. He said the kingdom is being fulfilled now. No more waiting. No more wondering when the Messiah will come. He's coming now. No more wondering how God is going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. This is the way he's going to do it. God is sending his beloved son to earth to redeem his people. 
and make a way for them to return to him and spend eternity reigning with him in his kingdom. And now Jesus himself is confirming it. Yes, it's me. I am the king and my kingdom is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe in me. I'm going to do the everlasting work of redemption on your behalf so you can be a part of my kingdom. And then he did it. He did the work. He was crucified on the cross for the sins of mankind. He died, was buried. Three days later, he rose again. He proved that he was who he said he was and he did the thing that he promised he was going to do. And then he left. Then he left the earth. He left his disciples standing there, staring up at the sky, wondering what happens now. The kingdom was here, or was it? This is the paradox of the kingdom. Sometimes we say that the kingdom is both already and not yet. It's here already, but this isn't really it yet. Jesus is the king, and he did come to establish his kingdom. But then he left to return to the Father. Why did he leave? He tells us the answer in John chapter 14. He says to his disciples, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus did come to establish his kingdom, but that kingdom is not right here, right now on earth. His kingdom is with his Father in heaven. He came to make a way for us to get there, a way to spend eternity with him in his kingdom. And in the meantime, he gave us his Holy Spirit so that we would not be alone in the world. A little further in John, in chapter 16, he says, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In that sense, we do have the kingdom here with us. Just as the kingdom was at hand when Jesus finally entered the world, so he is still at hand, interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. And he also sent his Holy Spirit to be here with us, interceding for us. So the kingdom is at hand already, sort of, right? That's the already and the not yet. It's a paradox. We can't fully wrap our minds around it, but we can believe it. We can know that it's true because Jesus proclaims it all throughout his preaching for the rest of his earthly ministry, as we will see in the rest of Matthew's gospel. So what do we do with this paradox? How should this change our thinking? How are we supposed to apply this text while we are still here in the not yet? The answer is simple, but it's not easy. Repent. We must repent. We must stop living for today and start living for the kingdom. Because here's the thing. Jesus did leave, but he's coming back. 
He's coming back, and this time he's not coming to reveal himself to the world. He already did that. This time he's coming to judge the world. Jesus says in John chapter 5, An hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is returning to judge the world, and at that point, it will be too late for repentance. The time to repent is now. So what does Jesus mean by repent? Repentance is not simply remorse or even confession. True repentance bears fruit. We talked about that earlier in Matthew chapter 3. We ought to be able to see the work of repentance manifested in a transformed life. It is not an empty act. It must result in change. But it's even more than just a change in behavior. It necessitates a change of the heart. A different disposition altogether. Both an active rejection of sin and at the same time a desire to turn toward the things of God. If we refuse to acknowledge our sins to God and we instead tell ourselves that we will rely on his grace and his forgiveness to excuse our sins despite an unrepentant heart. The Apostle Paul tells us that we actually invite God's judgment. Listen to his words in Romans chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is no biblical reality in which we get to ignore our sin or pretend to be immune from its implications. We do not ever get to feel okay about sin. But true repentance is also not inspired by our guilt. Let me say that again. True repentance is not motivated by guilt. Rather, it should come from a place of grief. Grief at the thought of a wronged relationship with an almighty God. Grief at the recognition of the wrath of God poured out on his son at Calvary, all because he loves us. I came across this Puritan prayer that I love, and I think it expresses this idea of true repentance really well. It says this, work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance, I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. To repent is to stop living a life of mere convenience and self-gratification and to instead start living out the mission of dying to ourselves, taking up our cross, 
and following Christ. And to do that publicly, to evangelize, to make disciples, to be a witness of the love of God to the perishing world around us. And never for our own glory, but all for the glories of the saving cross.